In the Gospel of Matthew, the 13th chapter, Jesus told his disciples a series of parables. He described, described the nature of his kingdom. In one of those parables, he described the field where a farmer had planted wheat. And that night, as the farmer slept, his enemy came and he overseeded the field with tares. Now, you may not be familiar with what tares are. I don't know. Uh, you may be say, well, tares are just weeds. Well, that's true. Tares are weeds. But what you need to understand is they're more than just weeds. The word that is used there, that Jesus used, describes what is, called, what is known as a false wheat. And that is, it's a, a weed that has the appearance of wheat, especially in its early stages. But it's actually poisonous. This is a very, very serious issue. When the enemy of this farmer comes in and he oversees the field with tares, um, and what we find in the, in the parable that Jesus shares is that the tares and the wheat begin to grow up together at the same time. Now, you think, well, this is just something Jesus made up. Well, no, it's actually not. Um, there's, there was actually a Roman law against sowing tares in your neighbor's field. So apparently, this was kind of an issue um, that they dealt with. And feuding neighbors was not, um, it's not just a modern invention. Uh, it, it apparently goes way, way back. Um, but interestingly enough, Jesus here tells this parable and he describes the farmer's servants who come to him and they ask him, can we weed out this field? Can we pull up all of these tares and get rid of them? Because we recognize that they are no good. And that's their plan. Now the farmer says to them, no. And he tells them that they're supposed to just wait and allow the wheat and the false wheat to grow side by side until the time of harvest. And the farmer says, at the time of harvest, these will be easily distinguished and they can be separated. The tares can be bundled together and used as fuel for the fire. Well, the wheat can be gathered into barns. Now, the point of Jesus' parable uh, isn't obvious to his disciples at first. And this we see a lot of times Jesus taught in a parable and his disciples didn't quite get it. Um, that doesn't mean they were dense. They weren't stupid. Um, if you and I were there, I think we would have had the same struggles. Um, but they very, very, I always tell my kids this. Um, there's nothing wrong with not knowing something. There's nothing wrong with being ignorant. That's what the word ignorant means. It means you don't know something. Nothing wrong with being ignorant. The problem is if you stay ignorant. That's always the problem. So if you don't know something, you ask. And when you ask, you get your question answered. You're able to identify what it is that you need to know. And you can... Uh, and you can, you can go uh, forward with knowledge. And that's the goal here. The disciples ask Jesus what he means. And Jesus explains then the parable of this, the wheat and the tares. And he says that these two things represent two different kinds of people. Right? The wheat, he says, represents the sons of the kingdom. And the false wheat represents the sons of the devil. Now, throughout church history, this parable has been misinterpreted and abused. Most of Jesus' parables have been, but this one especially so. And so we, we need to set aside some wrong ideas here. right? Contrary to that, to the, to the interpretation that's used, the field is not the church. So Jesus is not saying here that the church is always going to have true and false professors and we should just get used to it. That is essentially, and I'm really simplifying so I don't want to insult anybody, but that is essentially an argument that has been used throughout the history of the church in favor of baptizing everyone in a community and making them part of the church. 
The whole concept of Christendom, where you have the church and the state, which are essentially coextensive, everyone within a certain uh, parish becomes a part of the church by default at birth when they're baptized at very young age and they're made a part of the church. That is based in part on this teaching. The argument that, hey, it, it, the, the fact is Jesus says there's going to be believers and unbelievers in the church throughout its history. And this is a, a very, um, this, this interpretation is a very great historical background. It goes way, way back, at least, to my knowledge, at least to the 4th or 5th century A.D. So it's very, very ancient. But okay, it's wrong. How do I know? Because Jesus says that the field is the world. I mean, Jesus makes it very plain. If you just read, which this solves most of our interpretive problems anyways, if we just read the context. But Jesus says the field is the world. And so what he's saying is that the world is going to be full of believers and make-believers. Wheat and false wheat. It's not always easy to tell them apart at first. But over time, it becomes more and more evident. But Jesus also is teaching in this parable that there is coming a day of judgment when make-believers will be gathered out of his kingdom and cast into the fire. Where, he says, in Matthew 13, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The believers in that passage, he says, will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Now, you may sit here and think, okay, why are you sharing this parable with us? Why are you talking about this? I thought we were going to be in Psalm 125. Well, that's true. We are. And we started studying Psalm 125 last Sunday. If you watched our stream, if not, you can go on YouTube on our channel and you can watch it today. But we did start that last week, and I want to finish that psalm today. But I think that the underlying message of Psalm 125 is essentially the same as what Jesus was teaching in that parable. Here's what Alan Roth says about this psalm, and I think he puts it very succinctly. He says, the main emphasis of the theology of the psalm, Psalm 125, concerns the security of believers, especially in trying times, and the insecurity of make-believers who will be exposed at those difficult times. Psalm 125 is primarily about the difference between those who are believers, who trust in the Lord, what they experience in the midst of the trials and difficulties of life, and those who are make-believers, the false wheat, the false professors, who claim to trust the Lord and claim to follow Him, but the trial demonstrates the truth and the reality. And over time, it becomes evident. And that, I think, is really essentially what we see. Now, last Sunday, we saw two points here from Psalm 125. We saw, first of all, that believers are stable in times of distress. Remember, like Mount Zion, which can never be moved. And furthermore, we saw that believers are secure Surrounded by Yahweh. Again, like the mountains which surround and guard Jerusalem. So this morning I ask you, are you a believer? Do you trust in the Lord? Do you rely on Him? Find peace and security, hope and comfort in His Word and His presence in your heart and your circumstances? Do you find yourself saying to yourself, I feel like I should be worried about what's happening, but I'm not. Anybody ever had that happen before? Or maybe you say, you say to yourself, I don't have any idea how this is all going to work out, but for some reason I'm not anxious. 
I've, I've experienced that. This is the kind of testimony that we find in Psalm 125. The believer trusts in Yahweh. He or she rests in Yahweh. He doesn't worry about the circumstances of today. doesn't worry about what's going to happen tomorrow. He is at peace in his heart because he knows that God is all around him, constantly on guard. And whatever trials that the Lord allows into his life, they are for his own good and for God's own glory. This is what the believer believes when the trials come. That God must have allowed it. Therefore, it is for my good and it is for his glory. That's what the believer chooses to believe in that moment in time when he could choose to worry and focus on his fear and the anxiety and the uncertainties. And he could allow his mind to go that way. But instead, what do we do? We bring ourselves back to the truth and we remind ourselves that God is the mountains all around us, just like the the mountains around Jerusalem. That we trust in him, therefore we are unmoved, unshakable, and we remind ourselves of these principles, these truths. And so instead of fear, we have peace. Instead of anxiety, we have hope. We have confidence in the Lord. Now, on, so on, the, on one hand, as, we, as you read Psalm 125 and as we think about this, I hope that it's an encouragement to you. It ought to strengthen your faith in the Lord. And it ought to enable you to face every day with renewed hope and renewed courage, regardless of what is going on around you, regardless of what's happening in the world. This psalm, and and so many like it, but this psalm ought to give you a a confidence and a hope. But I said that was on the one hand, so that means there's another hand. (laughs) Because on the other hand, as we read and think about Psalm 125, there's a very real challenge that we need to examine here, and I hope that this challenge will actually, to be honest, I hope it will rattle you a little bit. I hope it will shake you out of your comfort and make you think a little bit and examine your life because there's a serious issue here that we need to address. But there are very real temptations. And where do they come from? Well, there are real temptations in the world around us. Of course, there are also temptations in our own flesh, aren't there? And the devil is always prowling about, Peter says, right? He's like a lion prowling about. And so there are temptations. And those temptations would have us cower in fear when the trial comes. Or, here's the other way, maybe when the trial comes, instead of wanting to just curl up in a ball in the corner and cower in fear, maybe what we're tempted to do is figure out our own way. Right? We're going to forge our own path out of this trial. I can figure this out. I can do it. I can muster the strength. I can figure out the solution. I can work hard enough. If I can control things enough, I can solve it. But either one of those paths is giving in to temptation rather than trusting the Lord. And that's what we want to look at today. So return with me to Psalm 125, and, and, and let's look at the Word of God. This is the fountain of all truth, and it is the foundation of our faith. So let's examine what he says here. Psalm 125, a song of ascents. Those who trust in Yahweh are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so Yahweh surrounds his people from this time forth and forever. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. 
lest the righteous reach out their hands to iniquity. Do good, O Yahweh, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. As for such as turn aside to their crooked ways, Yahweh shall lead them away with the workers of iniquity. Peace be upon Israel. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help as we examine His Word. Father, I thank You for the truth. It's hard sometimes for us to come face to face with the truth. It's hard for us to accept it sometimes. And yet, rather than sugar-coating it, rather than watering it down, you don't, uh, you don't uh, hide the truth, you give it to us. You, you, you give us the, the unvarnished truth, the absolute truth. And, it, and it, sometimes it's hard, but Lord, I'm thankful that you don't play games with the truth. I'm thankful that we can come to you and you tell it like it is. We see you for who you are. You tell us who we are and you expose us. And that is difficult and fearful. And yet, Lord, it's only in the midst of that being exposed by the truth that we find grace that we find your forgiveness and your mercy, that we find your constant presence and your comfort and your hope. And so I thank you for that today. I pray that you would help us to be willing to receive the truth, to examine our own lives and honestly evaluate what it is that you are doing. Honestly evaluate how we're handling the situations that we find ourselves, how we're responding and whether or not we're doing what we ought to do, whether or not we're honoring you and truly trusting in You by faith. I pray, Lord, that You would direct our steps and guide our hearts today with Your truth. Use me as I speak to be Your instrument. Lord, glorify Yourself through the proclamation of Your Word. And I thank You for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last week I said there's no information about this, the author of this psalm. There's no information about the setting of this psalm other than that it was included in the collection, the Songs of Ascents, which goes from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. These were songs that the Jewish people would sing as they were traveling up to Jerusalem to worship. And that's true. We don't have any historical information here. But verse 3 of the psalm does give us a little glimpse of the situation that was faced by the psalmist and the people of Israel when this psalm was written. Notice what it describes here. They were under the scepter of righteous, or I'm sorry, that, that's not right. The scepter of wickedness. I should be more careful here. They were under the scepter of wickedness. Now, what does that mean? Well, I think it's describing a wicked and godless ruler who had come to control the nation. Now, where was that? Is that talking about an invading army that had come in, the Babylonians or the Assyrians or something like that? I'm not sure. Maybe it's referring to um, uh, a, a wicked or and corrupt leader from among the people, one of the kings of Israel and Judah, that many of them were corrupt and wicked. Or maybe it's written at a time when there wasn't a king in Israel. Maybe that was written before there were kings or after there were kings. We don't know because we don't know when it was written and we don't know the circumstances. What, whatever we do know is that the believers in Israel here are subject to an ungodly king or an ungodly ruler, an ungodly government. That government here is characterized by dishonesty, corruption, immorality, probably violence, and who knows what else. Does that sound familiar to you at all? 
Does that feel familiar at all? Do you ever look at our own government and see the corruption? You see the lying, the slander, the waste, the immorality? Maybe you think it's just gotten out of hand. Do you ever despair? Or are you tempted to despair that it's out of control and nothing can be done about it? You just throw up your hands and say, well, it's, it's just it's too late. We've just, everything is corrupt. Nobody's any good. We, we, we live under a government that is corrupt and, and leaders that are corrupt. Maybe these feelings are heightened during this COVID-19 crisis as we see how our leaders are responding and, and handling the situation and there could be a great deal of despair. What's a believer supposed to do when the scepter of wickedness rises over his own land? Should we band together? Maybe we should find a bunch of other people who think like us and form a political coalition and we could wrest power back from our government. Maybe we should rebel against the corrupt authority. Certainly there are people who are saying these things. Should we give in to pressure and just conform to what everybody else is doing? Go along to get along. There's always people doing that. Well, if you can probably guess, I'm going to say no to all of those answers. They're all the wrong answer. Because here's the thing. According to Psalm 125, we have confidence where? In the Lord. Right? We have confidence in the Lord. Right? Stable as Mount Zion. Surrounded like the hills that surround Jerusalem. That's verses 1 and 2. We keep that in mind. Because of that, we ought to have a very different response to ungodly, wicked, corrupt government than the world around us. And certainly than the make-believers who are also all around us. Now the circumstances here in the psalm appear to have been very bad. But it's interesting, when you look at verse 3, I, I, I said this gives a little bit of idea of the setting, wicked rulers, the scepter of wickedness. But verse 3 actually is positive. It gives us a hopeful perspective if you look what he says there. He says, the scepter of wickedness will not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. Now, what land is he talking about here? Well, it may refer to the promised land. I mean, this is a psalm written by and to and for the people of Israel, the children of Israel who, who received the promised land there, the land of Canaan. That land had been given to them by the Lord. Right? He, he promised that land to Abraham and his descendants. And then he, he brought them out of Egypt. And he, and he promised them the land when he brought them out of Egypt. And he said he was bringing them to the land. And then he, 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 he led the people under Joshua into the land to conquer the land. And then remember when Joshua had conquered the land, they actually cast lots, didn't they? They cast lots. And each family received a portion of the land. And here he describes the land as that which is allotted to the righteous. And it may be referring to the actual casting of the lots here, that where the land was divided up that way and given to the children of Israel. Now, alternatively, some, some commentators have suggested that this is referring to more than just the land. It's really referring to their whole life. The allotment of the righteous is their whole lives because their whole lives are subject to the scepter of wickedness. Either way, 
Either way, verse 3 assures us of one thing. The scepter of wickedness will not rest over the allotment of the righteous. The word rest here has the idea of remain. It will not come to rest. It may appear, it may come over them, it may have power over them, but it is not going to remain. Why not? Well, very simply, verse 2. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so Yahweh surrounds His people from this time forth and forever. You think the Lord is going to allow the scepter of wickedness to remain over His people? You think He's going to sit back and allow His people to come under the the influence of corrupt government and He's not going to do anything? No. Don't jump ahead here because don't don't, don't think I'm going to draw some sort of conclusions here about getting us rallied together for a, a rebellion. That's not what I'm talking about Nor is there a promise that God is going to um, remove wicked leaders and give us us, uh, good, godly leaders, not until the Lord comes back Himself and does that. We have that understanding. But I don't think that's even necessarily what's in view here. Because he, He does say He's going to deliver His people from oppressive and ungodly leaders, but we've got to see this in its context. Again, this is not a blanket promise that God's people will never have to endure dishonest and ungodly kings. Right? If you think that that's true, then what does that say about believers in places where they are, where they are, are suffering under wicked and ungodly rulers and have no, no uh, hope, no recourse? What does it say about believers in uh, communist countries Right, like China, where they're not free to be able to worship and speak freely about the truth of God, or in or in Muslim countries where they're predominantly Muslim countries, where they're uh, 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 under you know Sharia law or something like that, where they're not allowed to be able to believers are not allowed to be able to to speak and 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 witness and share Christ freely and have that freedom. What does it say about them? See, if we take this as a blanket promise that God will, if you're a believer, then God is going to overthrow whatever wicked government is over you. Well. We have a lot of problems with history and the world as it is today. There are a lot of believers who are not seeing fulfillment of this. So I think that means we misunderstand it. But let's, let's see the context. Let's see the whole verse. Because notice what he says in the second part of the verse. This explains, by the way, why Yahweh will deliver His people from the scepter of wickedness. Notice what it says. Lest the righteous reach out their hands to iniquity. Now, what does this mean? Is he saying that if the wicked are allowed to rule over the righteous, believers will be tempted to join in the sin of that wicked government, that wicked ruler, and take part in iniquity? Well, I think it's certainly possible. It's certainly possible that when you have a government that is wicked and a government by wicked men who are doing sinful, evil, ungodly, immoral things, that that will tempt believers to take part in those things. And that believers may be tempted to participate in the the the, the wicked of the, their leaders. Is he saying that in general the corruption of society that comes from bad leadership is going to bring temptation to believers and cause them to fall into sin? That's also possible, because again, what do we see as the leadership of a society declines and becomes more and more immoral? Well, temptations abound, don't they? Corruption and perversion and immorality and sin abounds, and therefore the temptations 
for God's people are greater. Maybe he's just concerned that believers will begin to doubt God's support and provision when they're under wicked leaders. Maybe he's, maybe he's concerned that believers are going to become anxious or they're going to take matters into their own hands and try to throw off that ungodly leader. That's also possible. But whatever is, whatever, whichever way we go here, what's, what's very clear, and this is important, whatever we, whatever we understand, the wicked government here, believers are not going to go along with the wicked government. They're not going to go along with the evil practices of those who are in authority over them who are ungodly. Right? This is what he's saying here. The scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allowed of the righteous, lest the righteous reach out their hands to iniquity. Whatever the circumstances are here, the ungodly leadership is not going to draw believers into sin. Believers are not going to go along with it. They're not going to lower their standard of righteousness for political gain or for personal security. That's what he's saying here. No matter how bad the government is, no matter how wicked they are, believers are not going to go along with them and they're not going to lower their standard of righteousness. Now, maybe, if you're perceptive, you're sitting there thinking to yourself, Pastor, I know a lot of Christians have compromised their convictions for politics. And a lot of Christians have compromised their convictions to get ahead. And a lot of Christians have compromised their convictions to protect themselves from criticism or from hardship or from persecution. And you're right. A lot of them have. But when we do that, we're not acting like believers. We're acting like make-believers. We're acting like the tares rather than the wheat. Here's what the psalmist is saying. Believers are saved from overwhelming temptation. That, I think, is the thrust of verse 3. Believers are saved from overwhelming temptation. Not, he's not saying that believers will not give in ever to temptation. not saying that. He's saying that the Lord will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able to endure and escape. It's exactly what the Apostle Paul says. 1 Corinthians 10.13, No temptation has overtaken you, except, except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. In other words, if you're a believer, listen to this, if you're a believer, you have no excuse for giving in to fear and despair in the face of wicked government. You don't have, you don't have, that's not an option available to us. If you're a believer, you don't get to give in to despair and say, well, there's nothing I can do. It's just, it's over. There's no hope. You don't get to do that. If you're a believer, you have no excuse for compromise with evil. No excuse for compromise with evil. No excuse for compromise with the, with the corruption of this world in order to get along. If you're a believer, that's not an option for you. 
right? You don't have an excuse. You don't have an excuse to lower your standard of right behavior so that you can gain political acceptance. Or you can avoid opposition, even persecution. Why do I say that? Because God is faithful. And He will not allow the scepter of wickedness to overwhelm His people who trust in Him. That's what the psalmist is saying. The Lord is not going to allow the scepter of wickedness to overwhelm His people. doesn't mean that we won't be influenced by it. doesn't mean we won't come under it. doesn't mean it's not gonna, that, that we won't have to live our lives in whole or in part under the rule of those who are ungodly, wicked, uh, and, and, and ha- frankly hate the Lord. And hate his law. Again, there are many Christians throughout history and throughout the world, even today, who have lived their entire lives and will live their entire lives under the government authority of wicked, ungodly leaders who have no concern for God and his truth whatsoever. And those believers are going to live that way their whole life. But here's what we know. The Lord will not allow them to be tempted beyond what they're able His, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, the Lord surrounds His people. He is always present. His people are like Mount Zion, unshakable. See, this is the difference, right? The real believer stands. The make-believer falls, gives in, compromises. And so as believers, we need to act like believers. I'm getting ahead of myself here. Question then, what do we do as believers when we find the scepter of wickedness has arisen over us. Because again, it's really not a question of if, it is a question of when. may not be the same degree here in the United States as it is in other parts of the world. We may have freedoms that other parts of the world don't have, and even, I know some of you may be thinking, uh, uh, maybe not, Pastor. No, we, we do. We still have freedoms that other places don't enjoy, okay? But uh, the fact of the matter is, there's a response for us. There's something we can do. And I don't mean protest. I don't mean call your senator. I don't mean fight for your rights. Although, again, we have legal recourse for some things. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But what is the believer's solution? Well, we follow the psalmist's example in the last two verses of the psalm. Very simply, we pray. We pray. Look at verse 4 and verse 5. Do good, O Yahweh, to those who are good. And to those who are upright in their hearts. As for such as turn aside to their crooked ways, Yahweh shall lead them away with the workers of iniquity. Peace be upon Israel. He's praying. He's praying to the Lord. I I love the way Alec Motier in his, uh, his, his, his devotional is called Psalms by the Day. Excellent devotional. It's, 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 um, really interesting, um, devotional. But here's what he writes in here about this. He says, prayer for God to act according to his nature is the way to keep the ultimate in sight when the immediate is rough. Right? Prayer for God to act according to His nature. And that's what he's how he's kind of summarizing here. Do good to those who are good. Reward those who are evil with, with, with evil. And he's going to well, explain that here. But that's what he's asking God to do. God, be true to your nature, Lord. That's the way that we keep the ultimate in sight when the immediate is rough. So if you feel like the immediate is rough today, if you feel like what's going on in your circumstances today is difficult, it's rough, 
it's hard, then here's what you need to do. You pray. Because that's how you keep the ultimate in view. That's how you keep your mind focused on what is ultimately true and not get stuck focusing on the here and now and what's around you. The immediate can be rough. The ultimate truth is more important and more significant. So this is what we need to do. We need to reorient ourselves. We need to remind ourselves of who is really in charge. That's what prayer is all about. Prayer is about humbling ourselves before God, acknowledging that He is God, that He is uh, the, the, the Creator, the Sovereign Lord and Ruler of the universe, that He has the answer and the solutions. When we don't, we pray. And prayer reminds us of those truths when we would otherwise be tempted to forget them. We return to the basic truths about God and His world. And what are they? Well, I would call you back to verses 1 and 2. Basic truths. The one who trusts in Yahweh is like Mount Zion, immovable and unshakable. That's a basic foundational truth. The Lord surrounds His people like the mountains surround Jerusalem. Basic foundational truth. You've got to come back to that over and over and over again when you're struggling, when the immediate is rough, when things are difficult, when you don't know what's going on, when you're anxious, when you don't have any answers. Come back to the truth. God establishes His people who trust in Him. He surrounds them like the mountains surrounding Jerusalem. And when you pray, pray for grace. Because believers are strengthened by Yahweh's grace. That's what verse 4 is all about. That's what he's asking for in verse 4. Do good to those who are good. Who are the who are they? That's a big question. Do good to those who are good. Well, who's that? Who are the good? Well, we know this is not, let me tell you who they're not, right? These are not people who are morally good in themselves. People who don't need God. How do we know that? Well, one, because we know from places like Psalm 14, Romans chapter 3, there is none, what? Righteous. Not even one. So there's no one who's good, right? Remember when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and he said, good master, good teacher? And Jesus' response was, why do you call me good? There's only one that is good. And who is he referring to? God. Jesus said that. There's only one. God's the only one that's good. So we know that, right? That's the theological answer. But, but here's the, the truth. This psalm also makes it very clear, along with the rest of Scripture. Those who are good are those who have confessed that they are, in fact, not good. And, and therefore, they have found mercy and grace freely given from the Lord. To all who seek Him. This is the, this is the wonderful uh, truth of the Gospel. That it's only when we confess that we're not good and we come to the Lord in humility that He forgives and then He pours out His grace by which He calls us good. We who are not. In his book entitled, What Did You Expect? Paul David Tripp says, and I thought this was very good, he says, we all... Uh, want to think of ourselves as generally good people whose greatest problems come from outside of us, right? This is how we tend to think of ourselves, right? The, the biggest things that I deal with are things that are outside of me. People don't treat me right. They don't do what I, they should do for me. They don't uh, act toward me the way that they should act, right? We, we seem to think that everybody else around us is the problem. It's how they treat me or mistreat me 
at least in my mind, right? They're the problem. That's the biggest problem I deal with in life. It's my husband. It's my wife. It's my children. It's my parents. It's my, my coworkers. It's my friends. It's somebody around me who's not treating me the way I should be treated, and that's the biggest problem I face. And Tripp says, no. He says, we need to face the fact that our greatest problem is actually inside of us. And here's the kicker. The only reason the stuff outside of us trips us up, the only reason the external temptations even work, is because inside of us there is sin. Right? That's the problem. <laughs> our greatest problem is our own sinful hearts, and that's why the external works. That's why we get the external temptations and we fall. Because in our heart, we're already there. Our heart already wants it. Our heart is already corrupt and sinful. We need to face that fact. Proverbs 28.13 puts it this way. It's the same sentiment. He who covers his sins shall not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Maybe it's time for you to stop trying to cover your sin. Maybe it's time for you to confess it. To, to admit it openly and ask God for mercy and forgiveness as you turn away from it, as you forsake it. Proverbs says, who confesses and forsakes it will have mercy. That's the only way that everyone that anyone ever becomes good. Right? We don't become good by working hard. We don't become good as we, we sang about in the Rock of Ages a few minutes ago. We don't become good by crying tears. We don't become good by, by zealous good works. We become, we become good by confessing that we're sinners and pleading with God for mercy and grace to pardon us and transform us. That's the gospel. We come to Jesus Christ humbly confessing our sin and confessing that He is Lord and He saves us. And so when the psalmist here is speaking about those who are good, those who are upright in heart, that's what he's referring to. People who have already confessed that they're not good and not upright in heart, and therefore the Lord has been merciful to them and has saved them. But it's also important for us to understand when the psalmist here speaks of those who do good and those who are upright in their hearts, he is recognizing that true saving faith has an impact. It actually has a transformative impact on our life. So let me put it this way. It's a contradiction for someone to say, I am a believer in Jesus Christ, and then live a life of self-will. That's a contradiction. It's a contradiction for someone to say, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, and then indulge their sinful appetites. That's a contradiction. You see, when, when we uh, indulge in sin, when we uh, live a self-willed life, when we um, compromise with the ungodly, we are contradicting our testimony that we have believed in Christ, that we trust in Him. Because faith, saving faith, transforms us. And so the man in verse 1 who trusts in Yahweh is the same man in verse 3 who is righteous, and in verse 4 who is good and upright in his heart. It's the same person. Faith in Christ isn't doing good works for God. We've already said that. No amount of good works makes us good. But, the Scripture makes it very clear. Faith in Christ 
always results in doing works of righteousness and obedience. We miss that when we separate, by the way, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 from verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in. We're saved, not by good works, we're saved to do good works. That is the process. And the psalmist here gets it. He's saying, listen, those who trust in the Lord do good. Those who trust in the Lord have upright hearts. And although the wheat and tares look similar at first, as time goes on, the difference becomes more and more noticeable. The true nature begins to show through. The true believer begins to act in obedience and faith more and more. And what does the psalmist say here? What does he pray for in verse 4? Do good to those who are good. Do good, Lord. Uh, look on them with favor. Reward them for their obedience. Reward them for having an upright heart. Favor them because they obey. That's what he says here. Over time, the believer acts in obedience. He trusts the Lord and he develops this life this habit of obedience in his life, this pattern of obedience in his life. And then the Lord, here the psalmist prays that the Lord would reward that obedience. Pour out blessings on the one who obeys. We have a good God, don't we? It's appropriate for us to ask Him to reward those of us. It's not selfish to ask for Him to reward our own obedience. Lord, we're trying to serve you and obey you. Look on us with favor. We pray for this. That's appropriate. That's a good prayer to pray. To ask for God to be favorable as we seek to obey Him. We endure the temporary influence of ungodly leaders. We ought to pray for God to reward our obedience and strengthen our faith. These are the kind of prayers that the psalmist is praying. This is how we endure without failing. This is how we find a way of escape, right? Not by political uh, maneuvers, not by uh, rebellion from, from this, but by turning to the Lord, praying, depending on Him more. Now, the same thing, though, is true of the make-believer. Right? Going back to the parable of Jesus, the tares, over time, give evidence that they're not really weak. They only look like wheat in early stages. And as they grow more and more, it becomes more and more evident. It's easier to tell the difference and see that these aren't really the real thing. The same thing is true in the life of the make-believer. He or she gives evidence over time that he's not a follower of Christ. And how so? By their actions. Notice verse 5. These are crooked people who follow crooked ways. They are deceivers. This is the kind of terminology that's used. They turn aside. That is, they don't follow a straight path. They turn aside because they follow crooked ways. They are twisted. Right? The good, the upright, have a heart that is straight. These are twisted. They're perverted. They're crooked. Their hearts are not upright. And because of that, they will not receive favor from the Lord. He's not going to bless compromise with sin. 
He's not going to do that. But the only thing that we can expect if we compromise with sin, if we go along with here, and by the way, in verse 5, there seems to be two different groups of people. <clears throat> there are those that turn aside to the crooked ways, and there are the workers of iniquity. So it seems like there's, there's those who are the workers of iniquity. They're totally perverse. But then there's these other people that go along with them, that compromise with them. And these are the ones, he says, that are going to experience this judgment along with the, the wicked. See, this is, the, this is the reality. What he's saying here is that make-believers are sentenced along with the wicked. They may pretend to be believers. They may look like believers at first. They may give the appearance of being believers. But the reality is they're not. And over time, their, their, their actions demonstrate that. Your actions will demonstrate that if you're not really trusting in the Lord, if you're not a believer. Your life will show it. And certainly the day of judgment will make it plain. These are, I think he's describing here, those who, not the most vile, wicked, ungodly people. These are people who generally seem to be good people, but they go along with, they cooperate with, they compromise with those who are wielding the scepter of wickedness. Again, they claim to be believers, but the trial reveals their true nature. They are make-believers. They're, they're good at pretending, but time and testing will almost certainly reveal the truth. And the day of judgment is coming when the Lord will reveal every heart. And Jesus said this. He's going to separate the wicked from the good. The good, those who have confessed their sin and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ to save them, will be separated from the wicked who have heard God but they've despised him. And where will those people go who claim to believe on Jesus but actually followed the path of compromise? Where will they go? Well, Jesus says that like the tares are going to be bundled together and thrown into the fire. The psalmist here says the same thing. They're going to be led away with the workers of iniquity. Right? Led away doesn't mean going on vacation. They're going to be bundled up with the workers of iniquity and led away to destruction. If you're a believer this morning and you've trusted in the Lord, then as I've said, this psalm should be a source of hope and encouragement. We may be living in a day of lies and deceit, a day of wicked governors, of corrupt courts, immoral presidents, and many professing believers who are willing to compromise. All of that may be true. And please note, I'm not making a political statement for either side of the aisle today. It's true on both sides, and it really makes no difference. But regardless of that, know this. The Lord still reigns. And one day, He is going to set all of these things right. So what should you do until then? Pray. Pray for the Lord to do good to those who are good. Pray for the peace of Israel. By the way, not just the nation of Israel, though I'm not denying that here, but the faithful believers who are trusting in the Lord today and suffering in a world that is given over in large part to the evil one. Pray for them. Because there are people, as I said, all over the world today who don't even have the basic freedoms that we enjoy. 
And many of them suffer greatly for the cause of Christ. We ought to pray for their peace as well. But don't be foolish. Don't give in to fear. Don't try to rationalize your disobedience by saying, oh, it's just a little compromise. Wouldn't it be easier to live for God if we could just get along with the wicked rulers? Maybe we can find a, a middle ground somewhere where we'll have the freedom to do what we want and then we can live for God. The sinfulness of our society is not an excuse. The corruption of our government is not an excuse. The pervasiveness of immorality in our culture is not an excuse. The Lord has promised to protect His people from the overwhelming power of temptation. But if you choose to give in and live after the manner of the world, you will suffer the inevitable consequences of sin. Trust in the Lord and stand. Here's the promise from Psalm 125. He will uphold you. He will protect you. He will reward you according to your works. May you know His peace today, even if the whole world falls away. Let's pray. Father, I thank You. Oh, I thank You. For the reminder that You are sovereign and in control. That nothing happens in our lives without You first allowing it. Not just allowing, but, but even as we Scripture, You bringing these things to pass that we might endure trials and testing so that You can purify us. Scripture says that oftentimes we must endure the fire of trial in order to have the impurities burned away. We must endure the, 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 the trial of affliction so that we can become what You want us to be. That's painful. It's difficult. It's not fun. Even when we live in a time right now when there's a great deal of uncertainty, when there's fear, when people are losing their jobs, when people are dying, and, and there's fear about the spread and fear about the uh, you know, misinformation and no one knows who to trust, help us remember that we can trust You and we can trust Your Word. And even if everything else comes crumbling down, we can rely on You. And you will prove yourself faithful as you have done throughout all of history. But help us to stand. I pray that if there's someone listening to me today who has never repented of their sins, never turned to you, never admitted that they aren't good, but they need to be forgiven. Oh, I pray today they would see the foolishness of trying to go on in their own strength. The foolishness of trying to continue to prop themselves up. The foolishness of trying to, to put on a veneer of respectability and a veneer of kind of Christian faith. Help them to see that what we need to do, what they need to do, is repent. Confess that they're sinners in need of a Savior. Confess that Jesus Christ, who died for their sins and rose again, is Lord of lords and King of kings. Oh, I, I pray today that you would turn their hearts to you, that they would cry out for mercy and that you would save them. Lord, I thank you for what you're doing in our lives, even through this time of difficulty and uncertainty. We pray that you would magnify yourself today. In Jesus' name, amen.